0: Well good morning. It's a cold one out there, isn't it? <laughs> oh boy, it was bad. We can be thankful we live in Edmonton though, because I heard it's actually 10 degrees colder in Leduc and Witasquin. So, uh, guess is that, <laughs> amongst other things. So, glad to have you with us on site here, especially those who are at home. Uh, welcome to uh, West Meadows today. We've had lots of reasons to stay home, haven't we? For the last almost a year now, we've had these quarantine situations, and the cold just sort of added yet another reason to do so. And if you're like Nadine and I, we always have really good intentions of what we're going to do with our excessive amount of time at home, or we're going to exercise more, we're going to read books, we're going to learn a new skill, right? What do we do? We, we binge Netflix. <laughs> it's quite one of the most common activities that so many people are doing these days. And actually recently, one uh, particular series that we binged, maybe you've watched this one as well, it, it turned out it was Netflix's most popular series ever, uh, Queen's Gambit. If you haven't seen that one, it's pretty good. It, it's about a young girl who grows up to be a chess prodigy uh, in an era where that was sort of an unheard of thing. Here's an interesting thing about it is with the rise of the interest in that particular program, Chess.com has also seen a massive increase in participation online. You know, since the start of the quarantine, Chess.com has seen a million people per month, since, since March of 2020, a million people per month have joined up to be part of Chess.com. And then in November alone, when, when Queen's Gambit was released, they had 2.8 million people join the program to start finding another way to spend their time during quarantine. Now, I'm a bit of a competitive person. Anybody who has ever played Monopoly or refuses to play Monopoly with me knows that that is the truth. I, 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 I'm a little competitive. I contend to be... I, I call it strategic. Others call it ruthless. I, I think it's strategic. But here's the thing that you might be surprised to know. Even though I'm competitive and ruthless at Monopoly, I'm actually terrible at chess. You would think that those, those traits would lend itself towards that type of game. But unless I'm playing somebody who just recently learned the game of chess... It's somewhat an exercise in futility because I'm going to lose. You see, my opponents keep putting me in these positions where I'm forced to respond. I have to one-up them, right? You take my pawn, I'm going to get my revenge by by taking your knight. You you take my rook, I'm going to take your bishop. And when I do feel like I have freedom to make my own move, it's not a good one, right? I, I make my move and then my opponent makes me pay for it, and and my moves tend to play right into their hands, and this sort of escalates move after move until the inevitable victory of my opponent. Maybe I'm not playing chess right. (laughs) Maybe that's the problem. Maybe revenge is not the best strategy when playing chess. Maybe that's the problem. Now, I like to think that I'm better at the chess game of life, in part because I'm motivated by more than revenge. But even saying that, I know that when I encounter conflict, when I feel offended, when, when I suffer loss at the hand of another person, it, it stokes this fire in my belly. It stokes this fire for retaliation inside of me. You hurt me, I want to respond. I hurt you, you're, you're going to parry and then respond. And unlike the game of chess, nobody wins in that game. Can you relate to that? I hope he can because otherwise I sound like an absolutely terrible, vengeful person (laughs) if you can't relate to that. But but I imagine we all can to some degree because I think all of us like to win and we have a natural aversion to losing, especially when we're losing or when we've lost something or been wronged at the hands of somebody who is somewhat underhanded in their schemes and, and in their nature. Over the last number of weeks, we've been following the story of Joseph and, and talk about a guy who had a laundry list of reasons to seek revenge. And the story that we've covered so far through, through the last few chapters of Genesis, we see Joseph going from, from pit to pit, just one pit after the other in his story. Remember, it all began where he was born into this dysfunctional family where his brothers hated him. He's, he was in the pit of dysfunction. And then his brothers take him from there and they they throw him into a a literal pit. (laughs) And then they sell him into the pit of slavery. And then when he's in that pit, he is wrongly accused. And then thrown into another pit of prison where he is forgotten. His story has been one pit to the other. Now, when we ended the story last week, if you are with us, you remember that he, he did experience some success in Egypt. He reached a point where he was put in charge of the national food program that was going to save millions of lives. But here's the question. Is that bit of success enough? Was that success and that promotion enough to heal the pain of the pits that he had been in? Was it enough to heal the pain of the pits? And I want to answer that question for us today because it's the last sermon in this series. And so we got to fast forward a little bit. So if we fast forward to Genesis chapter 50, here's what we find. We find that this is a part in the story where, where Joseph and his brothers and his father, they're all reunited. They're all living in the land of Egypt. And now also, this is the particular time when Jacob... Their father has died. And because Jacob has died, Joseph's brothers think now's the time when he's going to get his revenge. Out of respect for dad, he just kind of treated us well and let let it lie low. But now that dad's dead, he's coming for us. So they hatch a plan. And their plan is this. They call Joseph in. They go, Joseph, I don't know if you had heard or not. I don't know if you saw it in, in dad's will, but... His final wish was that you should forgive us and just let bygones be bygones. Which was Joseph dismayed. And he responds this way in verse 20 of chapter 50. He goes, What you intended for harm, intended for good to accomplish what is now being done. The saving of many lives. What you intended for harm, God intended for good it sounds like God's a better chess player than we are. Because you see, while we often seek revenge, God has a different goal. God has the goal of redemption in mind. You see, when when we play, one person wins, one person loses, but but when we play God's way, he always wins. And here's the thing about when God wins. When God wins, so do we. We win as well. So here's the question we have for today. How does Joseph move from the pain of the pit to the place? How does Joseph move from chapter 41, when he has the power, the authority and every reason to punish his brothers to chapter 50, where he has the strength and the will to offer redemption? How does he make that move? It may mean, all, wondering, how is Mark going to cover nine chapters in one sermon? Well. I'm going to let you go read those nine chapters on your own, is how I'm going to do that. And I'm going to simply keep the story on Joseph, Joseph who stayed in Egypt, and look at some key verses from there that reveal to us how we too can experience God's ability to make things right, not just right, wrong things. Let me explain the difference to that. You see, what's the difference between making things right and, and writing wrong things? Well, here it is. You see, when we write a wrong, it acknowledges that something bad has taken place. If if something has happened to you that is offensive or evil, it's natural for you to want justice. Is that word justice? I haven't, I haven't used that word. I've used the word revenge and I'm using justice. What's, what's the difference? Well, here's a simple way to understand it: revenge, that's what other people do to you. Justice, that's what you do to other people. There's a subtle difference. Maybe there's no difference, actually. You see, in either case, the end goal is the same. The end goal is to even the score. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. Doesn't the Bible say an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? That's what that's about. That's justice. Well, I can tell you this about it. That makes wonderful Shakespearean plays. But in real life, it's very, very wearing upon a heart and upon a body. And the end result is it leaves the world blind and toothless. You see, but to make things right is different. To make things right speaks more about this thing called redemption, which comes from two Latin words, from the Latin word re, which means back, and the word emir, which means buy. So to redeem means to buy back where instead of increasing the debt by adding wrong upon wrong through revenge, instead something of opposite and positive value is offered. You intended harm, God offered intended good. It takes into account that a wrong still happened, but it chooses to not perpetuate it. It chooses to not multiply it, and it settles accounts to redeem. To buy back, to sell the account, to offer something of positive value in place of the negative that was extended. And see, Joseph is able to seek redemption over revenge because, first of all, Joseph did not allow his experiences to define him. See, we get to the end of chapter 41, and the famine has overtaken all of Egypt, and Joseph's in charge of this food program to, to feed the people during the famine. We're also told at the end of chapter 41, the famine was so severe, it spread throughout the entire known world, which sets up this situation where it is inevitable that Joseph's brothers are going to have to come meet him and buy grain from him. And sure enough, the famine reaches Canaan, and Joseph's brothers come, and they stand before him. And we read this in Genesis chapter 42, verses 6. It says, "Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person to all of the people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him, though. See, 20 years has passed at this point. The last time they saw Joseph, he was this annoying teenager who dad loved the most. This annoying teenager we just couldn't stand to be around, who we we threw into a pit and then we sold into slavery, and who knows where he ended up. All we know is we're never gonna see him again. Twenty years has passed. Joseph's an adult now. He's about 40 years old at this point. He looks different because, for one, he's bald, and not because of a receding hairline, but because the Egyptians would shave themselves, so his appearance is different. They stripped him of dad's royal robe, but but Pharaoh's put another one on him, and he stands before them in authority with his robe and his gold chains, speaking Egyptian with his shaved head, and an interpreter actually speaking directly to them, not Joseph. And they walk in and they have bowed down, so they don't even get a good look at him, because their faces are to the ground, they can't see him. He is unrecognizable to them, metaphorically, but also physically. You see, he's unrecognizable because Joseph has not allowed his past nor his present to define him. If he had, what would have happened? If he allowed the pastor to define him, when they threw him into a pit, he would identify as a throwaway person. When he became a slave to Potiphar, he would have identified as one who has no value. If he had been identified as when he was a prisoner, he would have seen himself through the eyes of being a bad guy, immoral, sinful, wrong. This happens to all of us. Perhaps you or somebody you know was adopted. I've talked to so many people over the years who, who have a, adoption as part of their story, and, and they wrestle with this identity of not being wanted. People who get laid off from work, and they identify as being expendable. People who are used by others or by systems And they identify themselves as being objects, just to be consumed and discarded. People who have habits that they just can't break free of, and they self-identify as weak. I'll never find my way. I'm weak. See, but Joseph knew his identity was not based upon his experiences. It wasn't based upon things that were done to him, nor himself. But it came from somewhere else. And we see that somewhere else in in verses 8 and 9 of the chapter, where it says, although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. And then he remembered his dreams about them. Remember, dreams in the Old Testament are one of the primary ways that God reveals himself and his will to people. Know what their future and destinies are. And in these dreams, in Genesis chapter 37, you recall, God gave Joseph two dreams. And in both of these dreams, his brothers were bowing down to him. He didn't understand the dreams at the time, but he's living those dreams now. But he's living them 20 years after the fact, after he has been shaped, informed by God over the period of 20 years where he is now open to the possibility of redemption. You see, when a person is defined by the pain of the pit, it, it just grows inside them like a cancer. It is, it's the pain of the pit just grows like a cancer, and, and, and there's symptoms of it. And one of the most common symptoms is to lash out, to seek revenge. It's the most common symptom of the pain of the pit that's growing within a person. And, and sometimes we think, well, if I, can just, if I can just express myself to that person who wronged me, if I can just make them hurt as much as they hurt me, I'll feel better. But research has been done into this. And you know what the research finds? It doesn't actually work. Research has been done to show that when we think we can express this, that will reduce the stress, we'll we'll reduce the pain. You know what research showed? It actually increases it. And here's why. You see, people with revenge are like a a little child with a Costco box of cereal. You ever buy those big Costco boxes of cereal? and, and You know, Johnny is about four years old, and he sneaks downstairs while mom and dad are still sleeping, and he gets his bowl, and he's big box, and he somehow manages to get that open, and then he opens the bag, a little too much. He takes his big box, and he's going to pour it in his bowl. But what happens? It goes all over the place. It just makes a mess. Because we can't control how much of it actually comes out. See, when we walk with God, when we allow him to speak into our lives and to mold us, as we talked about last week, when we allow ourselves to wrestle with his truth and and gradually apply it to our lives, not only do we come to see and become defined by truth, we also come to understand the identity of God, who is the king of justice, who is like the parent who can take that box of cereal and knows how to pour it out and the milk too in just the right timing and in just the right measure. And if we can trust in God to do that, if we, if we can reach that point where we're not controlled by the pain of the pit, but can trust God to look after it, here's what happens. All of a sudden we have patience. And we have trust in Him. To not just right wrong things, but to make things right. Which leads us to the second point is that if we're going to make things right, not just right, wrong things, that revenge and redemption require totally different strategies. Completely different game. You see, the bulk of the story we find in Genesis 42 to 44, which I'll let you read on your own at home, really gets tied up in Joseph's strategy. And if you read it yourself, you're probably going to find that it makes you a little suspicious as to what he's up to. Because it it looks an awful lot like revenge. You see, his brothers are before him, and, and he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And he chooses to accuse them of being spies, which they just adamantly deny. We're not spies. We're just simple people from Canaan who are starving. We we just came to buy some food. He knows it's the truth, but he doesn't let them know that. And then after they're in prison for a little while, he says, well, if it's true that you are a group of brothers and, and you have one brother left back at home and one brother who's no more, you don't know what happened to him. I wonder if you'll ever find out. If that's the truth, then I'm going to keep one of you in prison. The rest of you go back home, get this so-called brother, and you all come back to me. Now, what he's doing here actually looks a lot like revenge. Because if you think about the main points of Joseph's story so far, they kind of line up. Right? They, they made Joseph live in a state of fear, so he made them live in a state of fear. Joseph was falsely accused, so he falsely accused them of being spies. Joseph got thrown in the pit of jail, so he throws them in the pit of jail. It kind of looks like revenge. I can promise you it's not. I can promise you it's not because he's not motivated by that. He's, he's motivated by redemption. And to, to kind of in a summary sentence let you know what's happening in chapters 42 to 44, Joseph is testing to see if his brothers are reformed. Or if they're the same scoundrels that he knew them from the past. And here's why this is important. And here's the lesson for us. You see, people who push other people into pits tend to fall into pits themselves. People who push others into pits tend to fall into pits themselves. And Joseph's brother's own words as they sit in jail show that they have cast themselves into a pit. A pit of guilt and a pit of punishment. In verse 21, while they're in jail, they said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we wouldn't listen. That's why this distress has now come upon us. So then Reuben said, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen to me. And now he must give an accounting for his blood. See, it's true. If Joseph was still in the pit and he throws his brothers in there with him, what's going to happen? There's only one possible outcome. More more conflict, just punishment. If they're both in the pain of the pit, revenge and conflict is the only outcome that's possible. But remember, Joseph has climbed up out of the pit at this point. That's why we can trust his motives. He's climbed up out of the pit. He now has the upper hand. And so he has to decide what he's going to do with it. Is he going to use the upper hand to beat them down or to lift them up and somehow try to bring something beautiful out of a chaotic situation? And that's what he chooses to do. In verse 25, we continue reading. It says, Joseph gave orders. This is after they're released from jail and they're about to head back to their father and get their brother to come back to Egypt. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain to put each man's silver back in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. After this was done for them, he loaded the grain on their donkeys, and they left. When they discover the grain, the provisions, and their silver back on their donkeys, man, it looks like Joe's just messing with them at this point. They get home, and they are baffled. Did somebody make a mistake along the way? Is Someone trying to frame us for something. Maybe they're trying to make it look like we're cheating the king. You don't want to be caught doing that. But in reality, as this looks so odd to them, and and quite honestly, if we were to translate that to our current situations where somebody's wronged you and and, and we're wrestling with how to respond, this looks like an odd thing to do as well, even within our own context. But, But here's what's happening. Joseph is punishing them. But he's punishing them with kindness. He's punishing them with kindness. That's not what we expected. That's not what they expected. But you know what? That's a principle that runs throughout the Bible. Jesus said himself in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He says, you have heard it was said. And I said this just a moment ago. You have heard it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you. Do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek as well. In these words, Jesus is referencing this Old Testament law of retaliation that was established. The idea being is that there was a, a, a need to ensure that punishment fit the crime, but it limited revenge, right? Because we're just like that kid with a box of cereal. We, we want to pour it out, and we think, well, I'll just pour out an equal measure but no, what ends up usually happening is justice plus one. And then justice plus one over and over again leads to escalation. If, if you slap me, I'm going to punch you. If I punch you, you're going to stab me. You stab me, I'm going to shoot you. No exaggeration, obviously, but you can understand how that escalates. How many dads have had this conversation with their son? Now, son, you have a right to defend yourself, but don't escalate. Anyone ever said something like that, similar to that? Right? And then Johnny comes home and goes, Dad, I was in a fight. And then Dad asks the questions. Did you start it? No, I didn't start it. Did you escalate it? I, I didn't escalate it. What's the third question? Did you finish it? <laughs> yeah. <right. laughs> That's, I'm not sure if moms ask that question, but sometimes dads <laughs> will ask that question. But we have this, this tendency for just, just plus one. But Jesus has given us a more challenging standard. He's suggesting here that God's heart was never intended for his people to just limit revenge. Rather, God's plan for his people was to refuse revenge. That may make us feel like we're going to be in a weak position. Like passivity is the only way to go. But but that's not what it is. Those aren't the same thing. See, seeking revenge is justice plus one, and, and we're not even supposed to seek that. To avoid getting even. Why? The why is the most surprising part to me. Why does Jesus, and in a minute we're going to look at Paul here, why do they say that we should not seek revenge? Romans 12, 19 tells us it's because God's better at it than we are. (laughs) That's a surprising reason. Because God is better at it than we are. Romans 12, 19, do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. You see, it's not wrong for us to desire justice for ourselves or for other people that we care about. It's not wrong for us to want justice in our society. When we hear stories about human trafficking or child abuse, we want justice. When we hear about people jumping the line for vaccines, we, we want justice. When I, when I read on the news and hear articles of, in Edmonton the last you know, month or so of four Muslim women who were assaulted for walking down the street, I want justice for that. That should not happen. When we see and hear about evil in our world, if we do not feel anger and seek justice, I suggest to you that we are failing to be loving. It's loving to want justice for those things. But Paul here is quoting an Old Testament verse and saying that God's intention has always been to take vengeance. And as much as we can dish out, he can dish out so much more. And so he's better at it than we are. But he's better at it for another reason, too. You see, to say that God is better at it doesn't just mean that he can do more damage than we can. He's also better at it because he is also able to bring redemption. We can't. And while we may seek justice by human standards and systems, which is perfectly acceptable and appropriate, God also gives us a role to play in helping to bring about redemption. As we continue reading the next two verses in Romans 12, Paul continues by saying, On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will be heaping burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, when we're in the pain of the pit, this seems absolutely ridiculous. Overcome evil with good. Give him something to drink. Give him food. It seems ridiculous. It seems completely countercultural when we're in the pain of the pit. But when we can get on top of the pain, with God's help, and we can get on top of it, then we can miraculously do good, even to those who don't deserve it. And that's the purpose here. You see, the purpose of this passage, this instruction, is redemption. Paul here is quoting a proverb from King Solomon that says, Repay evil with good. It's like heaping burning coals upon a person's head. See, so this is a reference, it's a culture, it's something that we're not familiar with in our own culture, but, but this is a reference back to a time when people would carry a pan of burning coals on their head in public. And it was a sign of repentance. It was a sign that, that they were turning from something, acknowledging and turning from something. It's something that, that literally happened in that culture. And so Paul's referencing this and saying, if you can extend kindness, if we can find a way to extend forgiveness to those who have wronged us, it is forcing them to face their wrong. It will bring shame upon themselves, which can, which can cause them to turn. You ever bought a diamond? And you go into the jeweler, and, and when they take it out of the case, whether it's a ring or, or just a, a raw diamond itself, they take it out of the case, what, what do they do? They, they always put down a piece of black velvet, and then they put the ring on top, or put the diamond on top. Why do they do that? Because the velvet's smooth and soft and it just makes it look nice? No, because they're creating a contrast between the dark blackness of the velvet and the absolute brilliance of the diamond. And when the diamond is placed on top of the black velvet cloth, the, the purity is unmistakable. And you look, at, you look at the shimmering beauty of the diamond, and you think, I, I desire that. It has value. But evil on evil is just, is just black on black. But when we pray evil with good, there's this stark contrast that creates value and desire in the one who does not possess. See, punishing with kindness is not just about messing with people. It's about seeking their redemption. It's about seeking their redemption. Revenge and redemption require completely different strategies. And they lead to completely different outcomes. And because Joseph is a man who was shaped by God and he was defined by God and was able to get on top of the pit of pain... He's able to seek redemption in this situation. He's able to open his heart and his eyes to the opportunity to do good to others so that they have the opportunity to experience the same freedom in their lives that he has in his. Now, if we fast forward a little bit in the story. We fast forward to the point where Joseph's brothers all return to him, including Benjamin, who they brought back from Canaan with them. We get to chapter 45 where Joseph finally reveals himself to them. And it says this in Genesis 45, 4 through 5. It says, then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph. I am the one that you sold into slavery in Egypt. Now don't be distressed. And don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me here ahead of you. Don't be distressed, he says to them. Don't be angry with yourselves. He's basically saying, guys, I'm not defined by that. I have not allowed that to define who I am, and neither do you guys have to be defined by it. He said, instead, God has redeemed the situation. God sent me here to save lives, including yours. He's been faithful to me this whole time. He will be faithful to you. He's trying to offer them redemption. Now this sets up this beautiful, happy storybook ending for them. But I know that there might be some who are even here with us today who who don't like this ending. Especially if you have been wronged and, and the emotions of that are still fresh and raw. If you're still in a situation where you find yourself in in that pit of pain and haven't found a way up yet. You see, in those moments, we get consumed by the questions of the pit and these overwhelming desires for justice. We might ask questions like, what if God doesn't avenge me like he promised he would in in Romans 12, 19? What if God doesn't avenge me? And now it's true. It's true we may not always know the details of how God deals with people. We we lose contact with people. Quite often, those who have wronged us, we we separate from. And and we have nothing to do with them for a period of time, if not forever. So we don't know how it ends out. But there are a few reasons that we can trust God to do what he said he was going to do. And we can trust God to deal with them. And the first one is this. We can trust God to deal with it because people, by their very nature... People by their very nature who throw people into pits tend to live in the pain of the pit themselves. That's their destiny. That's their future story. We see this in the story of Joseph as well. So we fast forward to Genesis chapter 49. As I mentioned at this part in the story, the whole family has moved to Egypt. Now at this particular part though, Jacob hasn't died yet. And he's about to, and in traditional fashion, he calls all of his sons to come into his deathbed. And he's going to pronounce a blessing upon them. Now, if you read this in in Genesis chapter 49, the entire chapter is taken up with with just all of the sons receiving their father's blessing. But you, you might be a little surprised what you read because they're not all good. Some of them are actually more curses than blessings. He says to Reuben... Reuben, you have excelled in power. You will excel no longer. He says to Levi, curse your anger, Levi. Because of your anger, you will be a scattered people. Oh, thanks, Dad. See, but what Jacob's doing here is he's calling out who they are. He's saying, you're the type of person who pushes people into pits, and you are destined to live in a pit unless you can find redemption. In the absence of redemption, though, your existence is a sorrowful destiny, he says to them. So if you've been pushed into a pit by somebody, you don't know how God is dealing with that, there's a good chance that they're still living in their own pain, that that is their destiny. But you have the chance to rise above, to experience redemption. But here's the second reason that we can trust God to do what he said he was going to do. It's because God told us throughout the story of Scripture that he demands a price be paid for every sin. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. And so those who are far from God, while they will experience consequences in this life, they are also destined to experience the wrath of God in the life to come. That's the destiny of those who don't experience redemption from God. Remember, God's plan and his will is that none would have to experience that. And so he made a way that we can draw near to him through Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus can't rescue us from the consequence of our bad actions in this life. He can go through them with us. He can give us strength to endure them, and and he can even redeem the situations a little bit, but he, he can't save us from the consequences of our actions fully in this life. But here's what God did. That wrath that is demanded for every sin. See, Jesus can be our redeemer. So that not only do we not go through this life alone, but he takes that wrath upon himself. Because the rest of the verse says, But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, God's will is for everyone to experience redemption. God's will is for everyone to experience that he can make the wrong things, that he can make things right. And when it comes to Jesus, it's the path. It's the way to finding that. All we need to do is ask forgiveness for our sins. But here's what I want you to understand. It doesn't mean when we ask forgiveness for our sins that the penalty of those sins are gone. It just means that they were transferred. Because a price is still demanded for every wrong committed. That is a fact. But when we accept the forgiveness that Jesus extends offers to us, it just means that our penalty was transferred to him. And we can accept that gift and we can be free from that. And I think the appropriate response to that is to say, thank you. You gave your life for me. I can now give my life to you. You see, our desire for justice has been put into us by God. We're created in his image. And he is the king of justice. And on one side, that drives us to seek justice for things that happen to us in this world. To to right wrong things. But on the other side, also drives us to understand our need for redemption. Our need for Jesus who makes things right between us and God. That's part of the justice, the drive for justice that God has put into us. And see, Jesus paid it all upon the cross. And after he died upon the cross, he was put in a pit. He didn't stay there either. He didn't stay in the pain of the pit. On the third day, he emerged victorious, having defeated sin, death, the grave, and the pain of the pit. And he now extends a hand to offer you a way up. To say, you don't have to be down there. You don't have to be in the pain of the pit. You can get on top of it through the help and through the redemption of Jesus Christ. He offers a hand up. If you know him, but you know also that you are currently being defined by that pain... I honestly pray that that you'll be encouraged by Joseph's story here and see that through his example, we can be resilient even in those moments. That with enduring faithfulness to God, it helps us to understand God's enduring faithfulness to us. That while Joseph was in pit after pit after pit, he was able to get out on top of it and it gave him reason to have a vision of redemption for all. And the God's made a way for that to happen in our lives, too, through Jesus Christ. If you don't know him, and you now feel this need, like your life is that black cloth, and the gift of Jesus is that diamond placed on top, you can receive that. You can receive it into your life today. To walk with him this day and every day forward and receive eternal life and forgiveness with him as well. All is required is to believe that Jesus is the Son of God who paid the price for your sins. That his sacrifice was sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God. And that he did rise victorious on the third day and now offers to you the redemption and forgiveness of your sins. That you no longer have them counted against you because he has taken care of them all. If that is your heart and your need that you have today, you can come speak with me following the service here. If you're online, you can pray with somebody online or you can even just pray with me right now. As we thank God for his redemption. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of Joseph. A man who had many ups and downs, but so many more downs and ups. But, you let, Lord, you were with him through all of them. I pray for those, Lord, here who can acknowledge that and can identify with that, Father. That they would also identify with your presence. Understand that you're with them. You're guiding them. You love them. That the story is not yet finished. And that your plan is for freedom redemption. God, I pray for any here who are going through a time of pain and sorrow from wrongs that have been committed against them. God, may they feel your arms around them. May they feel your comfort and your love. To know that that you're with them even in the midst of that. But That as Christ defeated the pit he was placed in, you want to help us defeat the pits that we get thrown into at times. Help us to find that freedom amongst one another in our relationship with you, Father. Or for those who are still in the pit of sin, who have not received your forgiveness and and given their lives to you. I pray right now, Father, that the spirit that is among us and the spirit that is convicting. That they would choose right now to say, yes, thank you, Jesus, for giving your life for me. Thank you. That I no longer have to be identified with, with, with my past wrongs. That while there may be consequences today, I will endure those with you. And I anticipate an eternal glory and eternity with you. Thank you, Jesus, for taking the penalty of my sin. You gave your life for me. I now give you mine. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.